Well, it's so good to be with you. Who is reading our scripture this morning? Maggie, will you come on up? Um, while she's coming up, I just want to take a minute, and I want us to reflect on a person in our lives who we feel is far from God. Someone in our lives who we feel is far from God, however that may look. Maybe they've heard the gospel again and again, and they remain apathetic, distant, unchanged. Maybe they oppose God's goodness and his justice and his mercy. Maybe they hate Christians, a a friend, a family member, a neighbor, who it just seems like grace cannot get through to. Maybe it's not someone you know. Maybe it's someone in the public sphere, a, a celebrity or a politician who has power and influence but uses it for destruction, for injustice. Maybe it's you. Maybe you feel far from God this morning. I just want you to think about that person for a second. Think about what makes them far from God. Can you fathom change for them? Like, what would it feel like to to hope? What would it feel like to pray for them? Fruitless, restless, pointless? Like, can you even imagine what it would look like for them to be changed by God's grace? Like, yes, theoretically, God can redeem anyone, but can you actually picture what it would be like if they were met by God's grace? Like how they would be different, how they would act, how they would speak, what they would do. Can you picture that? I think think that's a tough task for us because it's so far out of the realm of our possibility. It's hard to envision a, a radical change like that. If we were to ask the church at the time of our passage today, they would probably say Saul, who is the main character in the story. That's who they would say, this God's grace is impossible to imagine coming. This really happened. This is a true story. And I'm pretty sure whoever you've just been imagining for the past few minutes, that this is even a more dramatic transformation than that. So Maggie, would you read it for us? Acts 9, 1 through 19, and 26 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you by the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among the among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Maggie. So if you remember with me quickly where we've been in Acts, the risen Jesus ascends and before, right before he ascends, the last words to his apostles are that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And then the feast of Pentecost happens and all of these Jews from all of the cities and towns in Israel and from outside of Israel, wherever they are in the diaspora, they come back for this feast. They come back from Egypt, from Cilicia, from Syria. They're coming back for this feast of Pentecost. And at this feast, God sends his spirit. Peter proclaims the good news and God's spirit is poured out and thousands come to faith. And then many of them stay in Jerusalem. And we begin to see this portrait of the, of the church, of this early church, that they are selling everything they have and giving so that no one has needs. We're seeing the works of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, the lame being healed, the blind being healed. And it's just this amazing picture of what the church looks like. But then we also see the enemy begin to stir up division. We see Ananias, not the Ananias in this story, a different one, and Sapphira, they lie to the church for their own glory. We see the spirit, I mean, we see the, a complaint that the widows, some widows are being neglected, and division and controversy comes up. And then last week in our passage, we see that persecution has come. Stephen is proclaiming the good news, and he's stoned to death. He's murdered. And so all these all these Jews who'd become Christian, who'd stayed in Jerusalem, they now start fleeing because of this persecution, because they're now in danger. And so they start going back to their towns and cities for wherever they're from. And Luke tells us at the end of that passage, he points out that Saul's there, that Saul is there at the stoning of Stephen, that he's the one giving approval to it. And then after that, he starts going house to house in Jerusalem, looking for Christians, looking for men and women who believe in Jesus to throw them in jail. That's what we're left off with, with Saul. And so now we pick back up in our story with Paul. And yes, just real quick, I'm going to go back and forth between Saul and Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. There's no name change, nothing, just Hebrew, Greek. The Bible goes back and forth. Great. So <clears throat> Saul, Paul, Spaul, he is back in our story. And um, he is still breathing threats and murder against Christians. And now he's actually taking his hunt far away. He goes to the high priest for permission to go all the way to Syria, all the way 130 miles to see if he can find Christians there and bind them and bring them back into prison. 
I mean, this is like Dog the Bounty Hunter, right? He is like going out. He's got his camera crew behind him. He is on a mission. He's devoted to this. He is going to stamp out what he believes to be a cult, right? He is this Jew of Jews, this Pharisee of Pharisees, and he is set out to rid God's people of this idolatry, of this sect who thinks this crucified Jesus is God's Messiah, He is not going to have this kind of blasphemy among God's people. And so he is on this mission of what he thinks to purify God's people. And so he sets out 130 miles to Damascus with the authority of the high priest and with this band of men going with him. And I want want to pause here for just a second because I, I think we can forget when we read stories like this that this is real life, that these are real people, that they're really traveling a week, telling stories, telling jokes, eating, sleeping, stopping for gas and Dr. Pepper and Kit Kats. Like they are real. They're really doing this. And he is a devoted Jew. So he is probably praying three times a day on this trip. I mean, can you think about that? He is praying to God for his blessing, for his provision, for his help to imprison Christians this whole week. That's what he's doing. A pastor described Paul here as utterly sincere, but sincerely devoted. I mean, he is utterly sincere, sincere about this mission, but he is sincerely misguided. Sorry, not devoted, misguided. Utterly sincere, but sincerely misguided. He's he's misguided. He is persecuting the God of his ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who he's devoted his life to. And so he's almost there. He's almost to Damascus and heaven opens and the glory of God shines around him and he falls on his knees and it's God. It's the risen Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You are persecuting. But look, look at the way Jesus meets Paul. Look at the way that Jesus meets his enemies. Why are you persecuting me? Stop that. Get it right. Fix this. And then then come back to me. No. No. You are persecuting me, but you, you are, but, but I, you are, but I, if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, then this is your conversion story. We were, but God, we were, but, but Jesus, this is the gospel. This is what makes it good news. It's neither what religion says to us, which is you are. So, so clean up. You are, so stay hidden. Oh, you are, you are, you are. So don't come out. And it's also not what the world says. You aren't. You're, you're fine. You're good. Come on. No, Jesus meets us right where we are. Right where we are. And he says, you are, but I. You are, but, but here I am. In our sin, in our shame, in our despair, in our brokenness, Jesus meets us right where we are right where we really are as enemies of God. That's what this says we are in our sin, that we are enemies of God, that because of sin, we resist grace. We resist God's goodness and his justice and his mercy. We are, but God, he redeems us. I was, but I was, but Jesus. That is how the grace of Jesus meets his enemies. That is how the grace of Jesus meets Paul on this road to destruction. And so Paul rises, his eyes are open, but he's blind. And all these men with him, they have to carry, they have to lead him by hand the rest of the way into the city. 
And now into the story comes Ananias. And so you have this faithful Christian in Damascus who knows what Paul has done to the saints in Jerusalem. He knows, he's heard the stories. He knows that Stephen's been murdered. He knows that Paul has been imprisoning Christians. And now he's heard that he has the authority to come to his city to do the same. And God comes to him in a vision and says, hey, that guy, Paul, he's down the road and he's had a vision of you coming and praying for him. So, so go. And Ananias is like, yep, that's great. Let me grab my coat and we're going. No, no. Like, look at how Ananias responds. It's exactly how I would respond. He's like, uh, okay, Lord, I hear you, but uh, that guy is trying to kill me. And look at how the grace of the Lord meets Ananias. He doesn't respond with, wow, okay, let me find someone else for this. No, he hears Ananias. He sees Ananias. He says, I know, but I've chosen him. The grace of Jesus meets Ananias the same way it meets Paul. I'm scared, Lord. He just says, I know. I, I hear you. I see you. I know. I know you are, but I. You are, but I. But I've purposed this, but I've planned this, but I've chosen this. I'm with you. I know. I know you are, but I. For I've chosen. And I've chosen that through you, Ananias, that I'm going to bring him life. That is how God's grace and redemption comes from when we're first redeemed and as he continues to redeem and restore and renew us. I think sometimes we can act like God knows less about our frailty, less about our anxiety and shame and fear and guilt than, he, than we do, that he knows less than we do. He knows, he sees, he hears, and he is redeeming it all. He invites us to himself. He says, I know you are but I, but I'm here, but I love you, but I have a purpose. So come, come to me, come with me. And what marvelous grace. And so by faith, not by sight, not by what we're all thinking, don't go, you're going to die, but by faith and by the comfort and grace of the Lord, Ananias goes. Do you think Ananias was praying for deliverance from persecution? Do you think he'd been praying as he's heard of this, of this persecution, of this murder and imprisonment happening in Jerusalem and then coming to a city? Don't you think he was praying that God would save him, that God would keep him safe, that God would deliver him, that God's justice would come? And then God answers, but not in the way that we'd expect. He answers by bringing his redemption and grace to the very one who is out to kill him. Where do you think that God's grace could never come? In, in your own life, in others' lives, where do you feel like God's grace could never come? Where do you not want it to come? Where do you say, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want that person to experience redemption, or I don't know if these parts of me, I, I don't know if I really want that. Where do you have no hope for change? Our God saves he redeems and he invites us to come. He invites you to hope in his purposes. He invites you to have faith in his incredible, miraculous, unexpected work of redemption in both our own lives and in the lives of those around us. That's what we proclaim. Our God redeems. Not a get better program, not an everything's okay program. We proclaim a Jesus who's redeeming and saving, who's making all things new. I want you to go somewhere with me before this, this final part of the conversion part of the story. We're going to go to a place of shame, not big shame, just a little shame. 
So I need you to go down to your gut with me where all that gets stirred up and twisty, where fear, anxiety, and shame, not, not talking about gluten and dairy, something else going on in here. <laughs> right? I want you to think about the feelings of shame that happen when you lead people astray into something you're convinced of. When you are, I mean, over something meaningless, right? Like when you're on a trivia team and you say like, hey, this is the right answer. Like, trust me, follow me. This is right. You're convinced and then it's wrong. You're in the car. You're saying, yeah, yeah, turn right here. No, no, no. This is the way. Turn right, turn right. And then it's not. Are you with me in that? Like, why do we feel so much shame? It is meaningless. It's not part of our identity. It's not part of who we are. We were just convinced, and then we led people, and then it turned out to be wrong. And it's like, I want to get out of the car. I want to erase that. I wish that never happened. Now, I want you to go back to what Paul might be experiencing. He has committed his whole life, a Pharisee of Pharisees, seeking perfection by the law, and he has been on his way to murder Christians. He's been on his way to destroy faith in Jesus, and now he's met Jesus. Like, what will they think? How, how do you even explain that? How do you even escape that shame? He's just imprisoned and murdered their friends and family. And now he's blind. He hasn't eaten for three days. His mission, his passion, his religion, it's all found to be wrong. And a Christian that three days ago, if Paul would have seen, he would have bound him up and thrown him in prison. He shows up to the door. And I want you to look and see what the very first words Paul hears from another Christian are. Brother Saul. With his hands laid on him, brother. Saul, brother. Can you imagine what healing words those must have been? And then through this, he his sight is restored. He receives the spirit. He's baptized. His sins are washed away. He takes food and is strengthened. This is how God meets his people with grace, with comfort, with restoration, with redemption for his people, through his people, through Ananias. And it's for both of them. It's for both Paul and Ananias. For Paul, his sin and his shame met with healing touch and words. For Ananias, who was so scared, who was so terrified, who didn't believe that God could bring this redemption, he's met with a brother. He's met with being invited into this work of redemption. Through each of them, God blesses the other. That is how God provides. And notice here, we've got the same sort of physical, spiritual connection that we've seen throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts. Right, this, The physical as pointing to the spiritual. This Paul being blind is not like some punishment for what he's done. That would not even be close to a, a good enough punishment, right? This is actually a grace of Jesus and an empowering. Paul is experiencing this physical blindness only for it to be restored, only for him to go from being blind to now seeing so that he has this picture of what it was like spiritually, that he was blind and now he sees. And it's not just for him. We know that when Paul later tells of this story, he says that Jesus came to him and said, this is what he said. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise for I have appeared for this purpose to send you, to send you, Paul, to open their eyes that they might go from darkness to light, that they might go from blindness to sight. 
So Paul is getting this this picture of what he's going to do, that he is going to go and open their eyes, that now that he has experienced this, now that Jesus has come and has led him from blindness to sight, he's sending him out, he's empowering him to do the same to others. That he is going to go before kings and Gentiles and Jews, and he is going to open their eyes, that he's going to lead them from blindness to sight. And now we're about to see the beginning of this empowerment, this call of Paul, and his, his, his beginning stages of this mission. And so this final, this final section of our passage, three years have passed. Paul was in Damascus. He, Ananias comes, he's baptized, he comes to faith. He goes into the synagogue that was meant to receive him, that received the letters from the high priest that Paul's coming. He goes and proclaims Jesus in that synagogue. That's this little section we skipped over. And then he goes into Arabia for three years and he's ministered to by Jesus. And now he comes back and he's going back to Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem's where he left from to go to Damascus. So they sent him off to go kill, to go imprison Christians. Now three years has happened. He comes back and he's saying he's a Christian. And look at how the disciples respond. Like no way. This is a trap. This guy who, who caused this perfect, almost perfect portrait of the church that he caused everyone to flee and now we've been in hiding from? No, that, that can't be true. This is a trap. He, he cannot have received redemption. And again, God provides through his people. It was first through Ananias and now it's through Barnabas. So Barnabas comes and he takes Paul, he brings him for the, before the apostles and he testifies to the grace of God in Paul's life and how Paul's been proclaiming the good news. And they receive him. And then verse 28 and verse 29, probably the most remarkable verses in this whole story. Paul goes and begins proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the Hellenist. Why, why is that remarkable? Paul goes and he's proclaiming the good news to the Hellenist in Jerusalem. Why is that remarkable? Who is that? That's who killed Stephen. Right? If you remember who brings the complaint against Stephen, it's the Hellenist. It's Paul's own people. Paul is from Cilicia. It says those from Cilicia came and they bring the complaint. They bring the false witnesses. They testify against Stephen. Why is Paul there approving of his execution? Because he's their leader. Because this are, these are his people. He's their leader. And he is approving of this. And now he is back. They sent him off to go kill, kill and imprison Christians. And now he's back and he is proclaiming the very same thing that he led them into killing Stephen for. I mean, like what in the world is going on? Imagine, a, imagine like the most extreme political candidate, it doesn't matter what side, that they've, they've been raised up in their party, they've been raised up in their hometown, and they're going on this tour of speeches, and then they come back, and they start proclaiming all of the other side's policies and beliefs and ethics. I mean, can you imagine the outrage that would happen? This is even more heated than that. They have been imprisoning and, and killing this sect and now the guy that was their leader, the guy that led them in this, the guy they sent off to go extinguish this sect is back and he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Do you realize that the disciples, the disciples who received him in Jerusalem are the moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and friends of people that he murdered? 
when they say no way, those are the moms and dads and siblings and friends of people that he imprisoned and murdered. Like, how is that possible? And as I'm studying this passage this week, I was, I was walking with Megan and I was asking her like, what, what about Paul? What about this conversion story just jumps out at you? And she said, where is his shame? Where's Paul's shame? Like, how can he just come into this place where he's played a part in this murder with those people in that place and just proclaim the good news? Like, where is his shame? And so I'm beginning to really wrestle with this. Like, where, where is his shame? Like, yes, I believe in the power of the spirit. I believe the spirit can redeem, but also Paul's human. Like, how is this possible? And so I went back and I started reading through Paul's letters, like looking for this. Does he talk about this? Does he, does he mention this? And I found three like very strong themes throughout his letters that jumped out at me. His being totally unashamed of the gospel. Like, yep, we know that one. That's the whole question, right? his weakness and his profound love for those he's writing to. Like, yeah, okay, the unashamed, like, yes, that's the question. How is that possible? And his weakness, like, yeah, I know he talks about that some, but it is just beaming, him talking about his weakness. And then his love. I mean, y'all, it reads like a love letter sometimes. Like, he is just bubbling over with love for those he's writing to. I want to read you just a few, a few excerpts of these. First Corinthians two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? There's the unashamed next verse. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Second Corinthians one, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt we'd received a death sentence. You must help us by prayer. Do you hear that? Do you hear that weakness, that desperation? Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Okay, last one. 1 Thessalonians 2. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Being so desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own very selves. Like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean not only the gospel? That is the thing. Like, listen to these words. We were so desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own very selves because you'd become that dear to us. But since we were tor torn away, since persecution tore us away from you, we endeavored all the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you. We wanted to see you face to face. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Do you hear those words of love? Like, why take all the time on this? Why take this time, take time outside of our passage? It's because our temptation when we come to this is to see Paul as this super apostle, this unaffected, he just throws off his, his sin and shame and guilt, and he's just able to go and, and just waltz in to the place that he has murdered Stephen and proclaimed the good news. That's our temptation. 
But that is not true. Paul is not this giant, unemotional, able to just throw off superhero and and come in. He is weak. He is at times afraid, anxious, scared, desiring death, desperate for help and prayer. And he bubbles over in love and passion and affection for his brothers and sisters. And this story of conversion is connected to that. It is not in spite of his shame. It is through his shame that he is able to do this. How can he pastor people he was ready to kill? Because he's been received in love by those very people. His love overflows because God redeems the very depths of his brokenness and sin and shame here. The people he once wanted to kill are now his family. How can he come into the place where he murdered Stephen and proclaimed the good news? Because he knows his utter weakness and he knows he's proclaiming the Jesus who can redeem that. If he is thinking about Paul, then there's no way. If he's walking in thinking about Paul, am I worthy enough? Am I the one to do this? Then there's no way he can do it. But back to that first one I read from his letters. I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus and him crucified. Why that resolve? Because it's Jesus that he's proclaiming, not Paul. It is Jesus, not Paul. Paul was, but Jesus. That is who he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming a Jesus who's so good, who's so gracious, who's so redeeming that even in his weakness, his shame, his sin, he's met with life and he's met with reception by the ones he wanted to kill. Jesus doesn't just redeem the okay parts. He doesn't say, whoa, that stuff's pretty bad. But maybe this stuff I can redeem. Maybe this stuff I can work with. Maybe I can find you a role in my mission with this. No, he says, I'm going after the deepest, most darkest, most murderous depths of who you are. And that's what I'm coming to redeem. I'm coming to redeem that sin and shame. So no, Paul is not one who's without shame. He struggles with weakness, with fear, with anxiety, with all of it. But he can proclaim because he has the spirit who gives freedom and because he's proclaiming a Jesus who redeems. And he of all people knows of the goodness and the majesty and of the desperate need of the grace of the good news of Jesus such that he can walk into that place and say, let me tell you about Jesus. So where are you scared? Where are you scared of God bringing redemption and healing to? What shame do you need the freeing power of the spirit or the welcome reception of this body to receive, to bring redemption and power and freedom? Where are you scared to proclaim? If Jesus really is who he says he is, is if this is really our Jesus, then we have got to ask the spirit for the freedom and the desire and the love to tell others about it. Because if this is really who Jesus is, if he really redeems, then I want my friends and my neighbors and my loved ones to know, hey, even in your darkest, deepest, most murderous depths, we have a Jesus who redeems. And our hope rests in that this redeeming story is sure. It is certain. God is redeeming and renewing all things. Look at the last verse of our passage, verse 31. So the church throughout Judea 
and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That was Jesus' final words to his apostles. All the way back in Acts 1, right before he ascends, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's happening. Despite imprisonment, despite persecution, despite the stoning of Stephen. No, not despite those things. Through those things, through persecution, through the stoning of Stephen, through all these Christians fleeing Jerusalem, through Paul going all the way to Damascus to chase them down, Jesus is redeeming and renewing to the ends of the earth. He is bringing good news to the captives, to the poor, to the blind, to the sick. He is delivering his people, just as he said, to the ends of the earth, redemption is coming. And so we can walk in the comfort of the spirit and the fear of the Lord, just like it says at this, this last verse, because we have that same Jesus, we have that same spirit, and we know that he is redeeming to the ends of the earth. I want to leave us with this. If you are feeling cynical about this, if you are feeling without hope, if you are feeling unbelief, like the disciples who don't believe Paul could have become a Christian, who don't believe God's grace could have come, if you're feeling cynical about God's redemptive power and work and what he is able to redeem, if you are like me, where cynicism creeps in and says, I don't know. I mean, yes, God's good as he can redeem, but I don't know about this. If you are like Ananias, who's scared and unbelieving about who can be redeemed. If you are scared to proclaim good news, if you're anxious about what depths of sin and shame in here that God is able to redeem and renew. Or if you are like Paul, who needs to be met right where you are, right on your tracks, right on your road to destruction. Don't sit in that alone. We have a body here who will sit with you in that unbelief and that despair and that hopelessness who wants to lay hands on you and speak healing words over you. And we have a Jesus who redeems for the first time for the thousandth time, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus who sees you, who knows you, who hears you, who says, I know, I know you are, but I. You are, but I. Let's pray. Lord, would you, Lord, would you help us come to you? Would you help us who are feeling cynical, who are feeling unsure, unbelieving, overwhelmed by our sin and shame, who have lost hope, help us come to you. Help us who are weary, who are burdened, who are lost, who are broken, come to you. For if we wait until we're better, we will never come at all. So please, Lord, draw us near. In the name of our redeeming and saving and loving Jesus, we pray. Amen.